Hi, this is Dr. Neil Shaw, and you're listening to Masters of Beauty. In this episode, I had a chance to talk to Dr. Daniel Gartenberg, who is the founder of Sonic Sleep. He's an expert in sleep and happens to know how technology can enhance our sleep. We're going to dive in deep to find out all the tricks we can use to sleep better. Doctor in cognitive psychology has also been featured on TED, uh, which is a huge accomplishment. It tells you about all the things you've done throughout your lifetime uh, to get uh, featured and focused there. As a, a professor at Penn State uh, and is the CEO of uh, one of the most forward-thinking companies in sleep, Sonic Sleep AI, um, which uses a smartphone, Internet of Things, of technology to detect sleep and make it even more regenerative and how to improve our sleep and quality of sleep. Um, he's currently uh, studying and uh, using some grants to validate his technology from the National Science Foundation and NIH. Uh, so, um, welcome. Uh, do you prefer to be called Dr. Gartenberg or Dan? What do you prefer? You can call me Dan, whatever you want. You can call me really Neil. It's all good. We're, I guess we're both using, taking off our uh, official uh, hats. Yeah, we'll keep it laid back. And really, thanks for that introduction. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And um, so... Uh, we're going to talk about some interesting um, areas that maybe you haven't talked about before in, um, in the realm of beauty and sleep and all that. And, but before I jump into that, sleep. Um, how did you become so interested in sleep and why is it so interesting? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, what really captivates me about this topic is that it's, that be, it's a behavior that we literally do the most of. Um, and I didn't necessarily have like a major sleep problem. Um, but I kind of come at it more from the biohacker side of things, like the optimizer side of things. Um, and my thought when I was in college was sort of, if I could improve this one behavior that I do the most of, it could have a massive impact on myself and also, you know, global health wise. Um, so in a lot of ways, this technology that I'm building, I'm trying to build it almost for myself. Um, like I would love to go to bed every night and get more regenerative sleep. Um, but then when I started diving into this, you know, I took like a neuroscience of sleep course by this famous professor at University of Wisconsin, um, Giulio Tononi. Um, I saw how much sleep impacted basically every chronic health illness. Um, and that's what then has driven me into focusing this on this for the last 10 years. Um, and I was being in a quantified self back in the day. Um, and sleep is one of those things that, you know, a lot of quantified selfers and biohackers are really interested in. And right now, um, you know, I actually got reinvigorated into this about two years ago when I saw the sensors in these new cheap consumer wearables could finally accurately measure people's sleep. And that's where, how I got to where I'm at right now. Cool. Uh, and I'm noticing your ring. I'm wondering if you're wearing the same ring as me. Is that Nora ring? Yes. Yes. Cool. Um, we're, we're doing like the same thing here. We got Apple Watch ordering. <laughs> we both wear it. And I think that, um, so that's kind of one of those things that people probably ask you a lot. Is there a difference in, 
if someone's saying, I want to try to biohack, and I, I just, I get both. There's actually another one I'm going to talk to you about and, and see your thoughts on that. But um, Aura Ring and Apple Watch, a any differences for, for us at home if we're tracking our sleep with it? And which one do you prefer and why? And Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, you know, we have some tr what I call truth data to answer this question. And as you're aware, that's polysomnography in a sleep lab. Um, and so we can see explicitly how accurate or inaccurate these devices are. Um, one thing that um, one thing that became pretty clear when we were like comparing EK, like clinical EKG to the sensors of these devices is that almost all the devices have very high correlation to clinical EKG. So my general analysis of these sensors is that they have very similar accuracy, the sensors. Um, what differs is the algorithms. Um, so how the companies are using the sensor data to predict people's sleep and sleep stages. And when it comes to that, um, you know, they're pretty good at predicting sleep-wake, like around 90% accurate. But then when it comes to actually predicting sleep stages, it can go down to like 70% accuracy. And one of the problems with this is that as far as I can tell, all the algorithms are population-based algorithms. So they can be like very accurate for one person because um, it's based on like basically a healthy population, but then it can get very inaccurate for other people. Um, and there's actually a new term in the um, sleep literature. You might have seen this New York Times article about this, orthosomnia. Um, are you familiar with this? A little bit. Again, it's not, you're the sleep expert. So, so I'm more yes, of the, it's yeah. like a new thing. It's, but it's basically like, and I, I come across this with my clients sometimes, is like, they're like, oh my God, my aura ring and my Fitbit told me that I got two minutes of deep sleep. Um, and sometimes people who are trying to optimize and improve already are kind of anxious about their sleep. And getting that feedback actually makes the problem worse. So like orthosomnia was this concept that um, some, there are some articles about, you know, people overly fixating on the feedback from the devices, and that's actually making the sleep worse. So oftentimes I'll tell people that, you know, the sleep-wake is pretty accurate, but take the sleep staging stuff with sort of a grain of salt and think about it in terms of relative truth, not absolute truth. Um, so, you know, for me, one thing that, I know that I'm a healthy sleeper and I get like a normal amount of deep sleep because I've been to a sleep lab and I've seen my polysomnography output. Um, and so when the aura ring, for example, tells me that I got like five minutes of deep sleep, I don't really believe it, but it does provide a relative signal to like when I got five minutes of deep sleep, I think I had relatively worse sleep than if it told me I got like 20 minutes, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of fall victim to that myself where I try to track my, my own sleep with multiple modalities. And I think sometimes I've uh, sort of fell victim where I feel like I've uh, probably overanalyzed my sleep to a point where I think that it's something I shouldn't look at it like second by second, day by day in every statistic because I'm kind of a little bit type A. And I think that's a great rule of thumb, not just for, it's for most of us is saying, hey, guess what? Let's not get so fixated on a number here or there, uh, because I've fallen victim to that, and saying let's uh, focus on the general picture and all that. 
um, because that's, that's right. right. Um, and uh, I, I think from again from a non-sleep expert step, that's my, I put myself as a non-sleep expert. Again, I, I deal with more airway obstruction issues and less on kind of the the science of sleep in that area. Um, I think the aura ring is easier to follow um, from that standpoint because it kind of gives you a little bit more data as far as um, dividing it up. And I like the sleep score. I think some people think it's a little hokey, but I, I kind of like that sleep score. Um, I think the REM deep sleep aspect of it. And I think in the current iteration of Apple Watch, it just because of battery issues and, and some of the apps that are out there for it. Um, again, it's not really integrated quite yet. I think that we'll, we'll talk about where, where Sonic Sleep is going into in that a little bit. It's it's easier form function just to wear an Apple uh, for, for I'm sorry to wear an Aura Ring than an Apple Watch. Yeah. Yeah. So so back to that. Like I think theoretically the ring has the most potential um, in terms of the battery is a huge thing, especially when we're trying to do like long term measurements of people. Um, and so our whole thing is we're just trying to integrate with the best devices. Um, Apple Watch is sort of first on our our list, um, but like we're you know, going to integrate with every single wearable, basically. And theoretically, actually, I think um, the signal of your finger should theoretically be better than on your wrist. Um, but I haven't seen that empirically yet. Um, and we're talking about integrating and we're talking about integrating for our, our listeners is with Sonic Sleep. And I use Sonic Sleep um, and I can't say I use it every night, but I use it actually probably about 50%, 60% of the nights. And what I, I live in Chicago and I think you live in, uh, normally you're in New York city, correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, and so there's, I didn't realize until I kind of started, started diving into sleep, how much background noise there is. And again, I have a house with three kids. My wife stays up later mm -hmm. than I do. Um, there's always like someone's turning down the faucet and they're brushing their teeth. You hear a toilet flush, all these little noises, they like, they can jar you. And then you get pissed off at your wife. You're like, okay, she has to go to the bathroom, but I mean, you can't tell her not to go to the bathroom because like, I need my, I need my sleep. So it's, it's especially when I have a really important day in front of me, like I have to have this up because it gives me, um, I think you refer to it as like an acoustic cushion is that right um yeah. and it, it, it actually helps a lot because you kind of block out all that extraneous noise you can actually hear sirens in the background over here i'm not sure if you can hear it on your set but um there's always some bit of noise so it helps with that um and i'll i, I try to correlate the deep wave it seems like maybe my deep sleep is a little bit more intense when i put the deep wave modification on the sonic sleep um, that maybe my mm -hmm. numbers are usually around two hours and i might get like a 220 um, you know, maybe a two thirty, something like that. So I might get that little extra boost with that. Um, so let's talk about Sonic Sleep. Um, yeah, and th and thanks for that. And that was one of the kind of surprising things when I looked into when we were studying this in the sleep lab. Like we would literally see people's brains turn on when like your air when the air conditioning in the lab turned on. So we actually had to go through all this effort to do like sound dampening in order to make sure that that wasn't confounding our study. And that's partly why the um, acoustic cushion, we're actually calling it a sound mask now, so it's a little bit more clear. Um, so that's one of the reasons why that was one of the lowest hanging fruit things to implement in the software. And, you know, there's a lot of like sound machines out there. I'm not going to claim that it's like 
crazy innovative, but we have kind of, you know, we have like a, um, a guy on the team who's a um, neuroscientist who spe- specializes in understanding acoustics. And so we kind of made this specially designed um, um, pink. You can think about it like white noise, but it's like a special type of white noise to block out the noise pollution in your room. And so that's sort of one of those low hanging fruit ways, I hate that expression, but I'm using it, to improve people's sleep quality. And then the other thing that you mentioned, um, the deep sleep stimulation is another aspect of the app. And that's what we have our grant funding for, which is kind of this really interesting finding in the literature showing that the brain essentially Um, processes auditory information as electrical signals and that with different auditory cues like you can play these special sounds at a certain time in people's sleep and it could actually prime more of these regenerative um, deep sleep brain waves and so when we bring people into our lab at Penn State um, we have someone stay up all night and then systematically play these deep sleep stimulation sounds and we'll actually see their brains respond in a certain way. Um, so we have it kind of based on, you can do it on an iPhone app, but we haven't, um, we've only validated it when you integrate it with an Apple watch. So we have like a little disclaimer on there that, you know, this really only works well when we can detect your sleep, um, stage, um, with an Apple watch. And, we have certain ways of being highly accurate for certain periods of time um, using any sensor that has, you know, like the Apple Watch that has heart rate and motion data um, to deliver this deep sleep stimulation. And basically in like two weeks from now, I'm excited for you to try this out. Um, we're going to have the Apple Watch integration. Oh, and so it's going to be much more effective. effective. Wow. So that is awesome. Because I've, I've been hearing about that, the integration, and that is like the next step of like, because people always want, um, quote unquote, actionable events to happen with the devices. Because like, what do I do with this data? And now you have a way to actually impact someone's uh, life. Totally. And I mean, that's the dream, right? Is that like, what do I do with this Fitbit data that's telling me X, Y, Z about my sleep? Like, it's hard to do anything because you're unconscious, So the thought is, what if we could actually use Internet of Things devices, i.e. sound, manipulating sound, and then also we're going to get into light, and then temperatures a little bit down the line, um, to actually get more out of the sleep when you're sleeping. So let's talk about some of these variables of light, temperature, sound. Um, Before we kind of jump into those, again, I'm always obsessed with all these little details and like kind of creating a, a sleep chamber. And, um, you know, so first talk about deep wave sounds. So the deep wave sounds isn't just kind of a random coincidence. There's, there's, a, there's a science behind these sounds, correct? Um, there's a specific amplitude and frequency and all that? Yeah. yeah, so basically the idea is, and like we're not the first lab that showed this. There's actually this lab out of Germany. Um, I can never pronounce the name. It's NGO, um, is the author from 2013. And this actually started with zapping people's brains with electricity in the frequency of delta waves. And so delta waves are the brain waves associated with deep sleep, um, which plays a role in like cell recovery, human growth hormone, memory consolidation. Um, And so at first they were, while people were in a certain stage of sleep, i.e. deep sleep, they would basically zap the brain. And then they eventually showed that you didn't have to zap, which is a little bit invasive, 
um, you could actually play sounds at that same pulse rate. So I could actually like simulate it with my voice right now, but it's all about the um, pace of the sound. Um, and so it's actually pink noise at like 0.8 hertz. And um, when you're in delta sleep, your brain, your whole brain oscillates between 0.8 hertz and like two hertz. And so we'll play that and like that's like a little less than once a second, basically. Um, um, so if you were to use your own voice, it wouldn't be Shakespearean iambic pentameter because that puts me into a deep <laughs> drooling sleep of oh. all. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah I mean, the sleep story. stories is another whole conversation. Um, but it, it's kind of like click, 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 click. Yeah. And so it's all about the the um, we call that burst burst frequency. Um and actually the contents of the sounds, what we've seen in our study, don't matter that much. It's all about the on-off at that rate, basically. Can you, um, thought process here is, do you think if you, if, if you gave someone messages during sleep, like if there's subliminal messages during sleep and said, hey, guess what? You're a wonderful person. Um, you're gonna heal great. Or you're, you're I mean, some area you wanted to work on them. And so, Theoretically, someone comes in and said, you know what, I have a fear of public speaking. Um, and then for a month or so, you gave them messaging. Would it work? Not work? <laughs> so that's the other cool side of this. And um, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the movie uh, or with the concept of lucid dreaming. Um, and I was really obsessed with this movie in college called Waking Life. That was kind of all about that. It's a um, Linklater movie. The guy that wrote Dazed and Confused. It's a really cool movie. Um, right. You saw it? I don't think so. Oh, I didn't see it yet. Okay, no. Right. Uh, it's really cool. You should check it out. But, I mean, there is science showing that, like, lucid dreaming is a real thing. Basically, people can be aware of the fact that they're dreaming and then manipulate um, what they're dreaming about. And we just submitted this patent that's kind of getting at exactly what you were just talking about. Like theoretically, we understand the science of how to play, and this is like a tightrope walk, because if you play a sound too loud, it's gonna wake the person up. That's bad. Um, and so first and foremost, we wanna make sure we're not doing that. Um, and so, but we also, with the wearable, know how to play the sound. so. The brain responds, but it doesn't wake you up. Um, so theoretically, and we haven't scientifically validated this, so I'm being a little bit presumptuous in talking about this, but it's really interesting, and maybe other companies can, you know, explore this too, like all, all, all the power to them. But like theoretically, you could play certain sounds while you're in a dream state that would prime certain types of cognitive processes, whether it's getting over fear of public speaking, you know, we were thinking about it in the context of PTSD um, um, and identifying, identifying these night terrors. Um, but there is this really cool scientific study getting at exactly this concept, where basically you expose someone to a task while they're smelling like bananas or something like this. And then you'll replay that banana smell when they're in a dream state and through Pavlovian classical conditioning, um, it basically primes the mind to um, recall that. And this is like not very strong science, but like there's evidence that this can work. And then they'll do better in that memory task the next day, which is captivating. captivating. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. Um, well, that's, it's, that's a whole other area where that can uh, expand in positivity and changing behaviors and some of the aspects and even learning. I mean, who knows if, uh, that's even, if that's even possible to that aspect, but that's just all, um, you know, fascinating. And that's um, where we see the future of, you know, health is just kind of not just getting better, but getting, you know, you know, better in so many other areas and things that hold us back. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the wellness thing is like one of those big topics that 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 got me interested in this space coming from a kid whose father told was a doctor and told him never to be a doctor. <laughs> like just seeing that medicine model of illness and kind of how dysfunctional it is. Um, so whenever we start getting into wellness, that really excites me. Um, is there a certain volume you, you want people to put this sonic sleep? We're still on the kind of the audio aspect of it. Is there an amount of volume you like that um, that to be at? Do you like it to be, you can barely hear it? Or do you like yeah, it to have yeah. it a little bit louder than that? Or TV listening yeah, volume? Yeah, so this is something, we just did a bunch of user, this is a good question. Thank you for this question. Um, we just did a bunch of user testing on, on this, and that's something that came out was people weren't clear on what the right volume is to adjust the pink noise the acoustic cushion. And so we are going to make it more clear in the next software update, but basically whatever you find comfortable. Um, so like in my bedroom environment, I live in a noisy lower East side, uh, apartment, um, for a reason. Like I want to see if I can solve this problem with my technology. Um, and so I have, like fan, like you can borrow one of my kids too if you want to make it even more real. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that that's that that would be a, a good fidelity experiment there. Um, a crying kid and you know the sleep partner and like the dogs and the kids is oftentimes one of the uh, major factors for why people are having problems. But um, sometimes it's hard to address address that, but there there are solutions sometimes. Um, so anyway, you know I have a fan going and so it's already kind of a mask and then i crank up the sound above the fan sound um that's just how i do it and that's how i feel comfortable with it but the to the easy the simple answer is whatever you feel comfortable with in terms of perceiving the sound i i put it at uh less than tv volume listening level because i don't want it to be like I, I put it probably like if my normal TV is at like a volume of four or five, um, I like it at like three or two and a half. So it's enough where I can hear it, but not so loud that it's like overpowering things. So just enough to kind of get those low kind of sounds. Going. That's where I, I typically like it at. Yeah. And that's why one of the things that we see in the lab is that people have very different um arousal thresholds and that's not what it sounds like but in in sleep science that means like the um basically people are sometimes very sensitive to things waking them up like sounds um whereas other people like you can really blast the sound and it won't wake them up it actually has to do with something in sleep science called sleep spindles um and the more of those you have the harder it is to wake you up from a stimulus uh, stimulus so there's a lot of individual differences in this and that's why i suggest whatever you feel comfortable with crying kid my sleep spindles are like off the chart i don't wake up <laughs> but so, so i mean oh, oh, don't don't wake up. Up. i don't wake up my wife wakes up she always thinks i'm just faking but 
<laughs> uh, I'll tell her it's my sleep spindles are just like, uh, but she wakes up easier um, with that. I mean, she, she can hear like a little whimper and she's like wide awake. Well, I mean, what happens sometimes with parents, and I've talked to a few parents about this, is you're kind of in fight or flight response mode for a period of time when your kid is really young. Um, and that actually negatively impacts your sleep. Like if you're in a high stress environment, your sleep quality goes down. Sometimes what happens is even after the kid can make it through the night and everything, you're still kind of behaviorally in that place. Um, and sometimes you have to work on ways to try to deactivate that fight or flight and, you know, associate your bedroom with sleeping again. And that's a major aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. This comes to something called stimulus control. Um, so making sure that your bedroom is that relaxing environment that is conducive for sleeping. Perfect. And we'll, we'll definitely want to dive into uh, cognitive behavior therapy a little bit later. Um, but I want to kind of go through all these little variables I have for, so anything else on sound? I think that sound, for me, it's about having, uh, especially if you're in a noisier environment, you definitely have to have an acoustic cushion. Um, definitely have to um, kind of control those aspects of it, put it at a volume that you're comfortable with. And then um, uh, jumping over into light. Um, so people talk about, you know, blacking out lights, putting tape over things, getting rid of blue lights, all those aspects on it. Um, should you have the room totally dark? Um, what about having like light, natural sunlight coming in the morning to wake you up versus some people talk about having red light around. So any thoughts on light, where you want light to go? And I think one of the challenges I have um, is that I, if I have it completely blacked out, what happens is in the morning, I don't get that sunlight kind of like waking me up. Uh, my wife gets upset. She wants just a little bit of baseline light. Um, so back and forth on light. So what are your thoughts on light? Yeah. So basically what like a sleep, first off, I'm not a sleep clinician. I'll just make it clear that I'm not a clinical doctor, but what a sleep clinician might say about this and what my professor uh, would probably say is you want dark, quiet, cool um, in terms of the bedroom environment. The darker, the better, the quieter, the better, you know, and by quiet, we mean not like abrupt sounds because the abruptness of the sound is actually the disruption part of it. Um, now, it's interesting. There's some nuance to this. Um, and the professor I work with and his wife have done these crazy light studies, um, uh, Anne-Marie Chang and uh, Orfeo Buxton, um, where they'll like bring someone into a sleep lab, give them no light cues for like a two week period, and then systematically manipulate light to shift their circadian rhythm. Um, because you know, and I, I tell this to people in my sleep consultations a lot, really trying to convey how important light is. It's almost like the first drug that our, any organism ever experienced. Like we evolved from bacteria in the ocean that could distinguish sunlight from darkness. Um, and that's why like every organism has a circadian rhythm. Um, and so for humans, that rhythm is basically um, 24 hours. It's a little bit less than that, actually. But you can shift it um, with different light exposures at different times of the day. So you could literally, if someone's a morning owl, you can shift them to be a night owl. Uh, 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 if someone's a morning lark, you can shift them to be a night owl by exposing them to a lot of sunlight in the nighttime. All right, I'm getting on a garden path here. But um, basically to answer your question, 
Um, we have these receptors in our eyes that control melatonin um, by sending a signal to a part in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that's why it's good to uh, get that sunlight exposure in the morning. So it is a little tricky, though, because you want the dark, but then you also want to wake up um, with sunlight, basically. That's why we think that the solution is integrating with the smart light environment, um, Philips Hue, LifeX bulbs. And so that's another aspect of what we're doing is so we have this really gradual alarm wake up, which is another thing that I think is a it's the right way to wake up. I'm 100 percent sure of this. Like you don't want to wake up with that jarring like feeling. Um, you want to wake up very gradually because that's going to let you basically get a little bit more sleep that you probably need. Um, theoretically, you should have no alarm clock at all, right? Um, you know, obviously that's not always practical. Um, but if you do have an alarm clock, at least use one that wakes you up gradually, like in Sonic. Um, and so the right thing to do here for you, I think, would be blackout blinds but then integrate with the smart light to give yourself that cue to wake up. So it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too. Um, and then the other thing that I think Dave Asprey really hit the nail on the head with this is the red light at night. Um, and there's new science coming out, um, basically showing that if you're gonna be exposed to any light at night, it's better for it to be red. And even some evidence showing that red primes fatigue. Um, so, you know, when I go into my sleep environment, um, I say, you know, hey Siri, I'm going to bed. All my lights turn red. And that happens 30 minutes before sleep. Um, and that's also kind of... Sorry, Is that Philips Hue, all light bulbs that turn red? I, I use LifeX, but Philips Hue, you can do the exact same thing. Um, and so our thought is we're going to integrate with both of those eventually. Um, but next on our roadmap is the LifeX. You know, the other thing, um, some of these smart shades that go up and down. Um, cause then I, I looked into that. How, what, I, I don't know that much about it. I haven't gone and invested in that aspect of it, uh, whether to put that in my house. Is that, that's pretty complicated though, right? So, yeah, I, I looked into it. It was just, if I had, if I was like a very successful startup, I'd probably buy it. But uh, they were just kind of expensive. Um, but kind of down the down the line, we're, we're, I'm going to think about that also. Because it's interesting. You, you could put them on a timer. I haven't gotten into the nuance of how it could actually work. Uh, yeah. So that would theoretically with your Alexa set up a, like a, a scene or, or not, and then set that up to Sonic Sleep. So here's light, here's that. Uh, but um, because it's the quandary, I think a lot of people are having it because you want this, the light. I guess you're solving it with the Philips Hue because now you're getting, or the LifeX, you're getting the red light, then dark, and then that will wake you up in the morning as well? Yes, that's the thought. And then what do you wake up with? What kind of light do you like to wake up with? Is that where you go with just regular light or do you go with a different color? Um, I, you, well, in basically what I suggest to people is it's not necessarily you don't need it right when you wake up. I mean, I think it's good to get that light because it primes you to wake up, basically. Um, but the big thing is to get enough sunlight during yeah, the day. sunlight right after. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so it's not you don't have to be, like, crazy vigilant about – because you want to give a spike to your circadian rhythm. 
So what I have, and I make sure that everyone that I work with does this too, is we set up these 10,000 lux, because we work in a place that doesn't get any sunlight, basically. Um, So to counteract that, we set up these 10,000 lux lamps all around the office um, to make sure that you get your dosage of sunlight during the day. Because one thing I've noticed in the media, there's been so much talk about, you know, the the devices emanating light, which is hurting people's uh, ability to sleep, which is totally valid and true. But the other side of the coin is getting that sunlight during the day. And now that we're like indoor computer animals now, um, it's important that we are getting that sunlight dosage during the day. And the happy lamps, if you just Google 10,000 Lux lamp, um, is a solution for that. For that. Oh, great. Um, now with the temperature aspect, um, I actually think that's harder to control than um, some people give it credit for. The things I've looked at um, and uh, interesting are like like a chili pad or a bed jet. Um, there's also an ember uh, that's out there, and um, you know it gets kind of hot. You know sometimes, so I think that the bed jet theoretically blows air on you, and sometimes that's theoretically the weakness in that is getting you cool enough. Although there's mixed on that. Uh, I don't I don't have any of these so. Um, chili pad theoretically uses water and some of these can be somewhat integrated, although not really, um, you know, with, um, they have like a thing you can kind of design yourself, which seems like that might make it more complicated for people. Um, so your thoughts on any of these devices and what's their temperature, what should it be at the beginning? What should it be in the middle of the night? And when you wake up? Yeah. So the temperature actually, so when I think about the space, I think about when we think about like the actuators for temperature are a little bit earlier in the market than like speakers, you know, like every major hardware manufacturer has nailed the speaker form factor. And also the light is pretty like well trudged territory. Um, And those devices that you mentioned are the state of the art in temperature right now. The only one that I would add is um, the eight mattress, um, which I've also tried out and, I was pretty impressed by it. Um, very similar concept to the uh, bed jet and chili pad, except it's uh, embedded. In, it's in the bed actually. Oh, how cool is that? Instead of a top. Instead of a topper. Nice. But um, with the uh, Ember is actually a wrist-based one that is mainly used for hot flashes, um, and there's some efficacy. And in, in, I haven't actually tried that one out. Um, but it, it does seem like that that's another option. When it comes to the science of sleep, here, here it is. So basically, there's um, FDA-approved devices that can cool your body temperature at night that are shown to address insomnia. Um, so basically, when you're, going, when you're falling asleep, your body temperature naturally falls. Um, so you can prime falling asleep with a colder environment. Um, And then the other part of temperature is that when you're in REM sleep, you actually lose thermoregulation, meaning if it's hot in your environment, your body gets hot and sweaty. If it's cold, um, you know, you get cold. And a lot of times if it's not, if you're in, if you're either too hot or too cold, you'll pop out of REM and that's bad. Um, If someone wakes up in the middle of the night sweating, um, Usually it's in the second half of your sleep because that's when REM occurs more. 
Um, it's probably there's something in your bedroom environment that you can do to optimize your sleep. That, that's a cue that I have that there's something that can be done in your environment to help you. Um, and so I have a blog post. A simple solution is um, when you have a sleep partner, just have multiple blankets. So I have this post called Split Blankets, Not Beds. All about, you know, Americans have this conception that we need to sleep in the same comforter together as a sleep partner. But like, that's not the case in the Netherlands and other countries. So just having people have naturally different body temperatures and just respecting that with different blankets is like a no brainer, simple solution. Um, when we're getting into this deeper, theoretically, you could basically extend REM, which is a good thing, um, by delivering optimum temperature at certain times in sleep. But that's very speculative, and we have to do the science there still. And where would you want that temperature? You'd want it to be kind of in that 68 to 71, or is it going to be very from person to person on, on that REM area? Yeah, <laughs> frankly, I'm not totally sure. Um, I, I think it's going to be have a lot of individual differences to it. I mean, like men naturally run a little warmer than women, and that's probably going to be a factor. Like, this is why sleep is interesting, but why it's also such a hard problem is that the individual differences between people are massive. Like, if you looked at like your sleep stages throughout the night, they're similar from night to night to yourself but very different from my sleep from uh, night to night. So it's probably going to be like you have each person probably has their ideal REM temperature um, where you could extend REM by priming that temperature, basically. Yeah, my REM is awful on my aura. So I am, uh, I have to adjust. I have to get another blanket. I'm going to tell my wife. <laughs> Um, there you go. Uh, but it's, yeah, my REM is awful. I have good deep sleep, but my REM is uh, not good. I wouldn't necessarily um, believe it 100%, so keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Okay, that's one thing to know. Okay. Um, uh, we talked about temperature, sleep, actually, some of the other things that people talk about with sleep habits is, um, uh, besides temperature, bed angle, any issues with that, or is that going to vary from person to person? Do you notice that some people, is that going to be more in the airway obstruction issue than actual sleep, um, you know, kind of aspects in that? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to like positioning and bed, a lot of this has to do with apnea and back issues. Um, you know, so when you have apnea, as you're familiar with, the soft palate, you know, blocks the airway. Um, and so um, I, I don't know what you recommend uh, to so, your so patients. So for me, I, actually, I don't, I don't know if the, the answers are as, as straightforward as possible because um, so there's a there's another device that's out right now called Better. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's called B E D D R, um, mm -hmm. and uh, the reason I looked at that device too, and actually I, I have that and I've been using that on myself, is because I, I like the Aura Ring and I like the Apple Watch um, aspect of it, but sometimes um, and there it's not supposed to be an everyday. Um, device, it actually measures your pulse ox and your like more like a sleep lab, like an RDI. And so for me, that's kind of something I'm more familiar with than some of these other aspects of it. And um, so you wouldn't want to use it like every day, but sort of a, the first question I always ask, is it like truly apnea or is it like 
um, cognitive, behavioral, is it, you know, temperature, is it regular, I mean, this whole other category. And I think people probably fall a little bit into some of these categories. And if they're an apnea person, um, you know, if it's a 300 pound person who has apneas at night, well, their problems might be more, um, you know, physical. Uh, but if they're a healthy person and they're not sleeping, or they're a person who's maybe even five, ten pounds, and they're, temp they're, they're noisy, and there's, there's lots of different crossover in sleep. It's so complicated, and every person's so different. So I, I measured myself with that Better app a little bit, and I actually kind of like it because um, you get a pulse ox reading with it, and you get, um, and it's, it's not good for sleep stages, and it's kind of mm -hmm. chunky, it's kind of in their interstate, but I think it'll probably get better with time. And I, but kind of measuring that. Um, uh, so I, I put my bed at like a 15 degree angle, which my wife hated, and I was getting more apneas than when I was at a flat level, because I think I was putting my head, so I, I think it's such a variable thing, is your head going to curl down, is this going to happen, so I right, think that right. airway obstruction aspect of it is, I probably was doing a little of that uh, um, psychosomatic sleep issues where I was kind of inducing myself to not sleep as well. <laughs> Well, I mean, what I've seen in the literature from this is you want to sleep laterally. I mean, like on your side, basically. Is that kind of what you... Uh, would... Theoretically, that's better because you have less uh, less tongue retrieving, things going back, less soft palate. As we get older, our tissues tend to descend more a little bit. So I think that aspect of it makes sense uh, versus yeah. back yeah. sleeping theoretically can be worse for sleeping. Um, uh, but... Uh, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of that aspect with it. So I think that um, bed angle, I think, is going to vary from person to person. Um, uh, but yeah, the sleep, the sleep apnea thing, like, you probably, you know more about it than me, honestly. I mean, w w one of the things that, you know, the pulse ox is definitely a signal. Like, when we do our sleep labs, we screen, we sleep studies, we screen for sleep apnea using a, a pulse ox. I'm sometimes surprised that people aren't more familiar with these devices. I mean, it seems like such a first line of defense against this stuff. And if anyone does think that they might have sleep apnea, like it's so non-invasive just to go to your general practitioner and get a pulse ox, right? Like, uh, but the only problem with the regular pulse ox is typically they don't measure it during the night. So um, that's why I think that app, because usually I don't think there's a smart pulse ox that kind of records it. Maybe there is, maybe well, there is. We, we use a known-in device. It costs like eight hundred bucks. Um, that'll say, yeah, you're right. Like the cheap ones, you can't do it throughout the night. But this saves the recording, and then you'll get a score where you want to be like above ninety oxygenation or whatever throughout the entire night. Yes. Yeah, so, so the the better one is actually pretty cost-effective. I think it's like one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, they can oh, go home oh, with yeah. it. Uh, it syncs to your Apple Watch. It, it brings the data over there, and then um, I'm not like investor or anything like that. I just like literally just bought it online, um, and then um, yeah. it it does. Uh, it gives you an oxygen score, gives you an RDI score, and then um, I try to correlate the Aura Ring and the Better together. And uh -huh. um, you know, and my thoughts are for patients who are pre-surgery versus post-surgery versus they they clearly have. But the problem with this is, it, it sleep is such a complicated issue that if it's not an obstruction issue and they still have issues with sleeping, so many times it falls into this huge other category of like, okay, well now what do I do? Um, mm -hmm. And kind of some of the things that patients will try, I'll kind of mention some things that I don't think really work for sleep. Um, so one of the things they'll try is like melatonin. Um, I think it's good for resetting circadian, maybe for jet lag, but does it actually do that or work with sleep? Your thoughts on that? I mean, one thing that I came across is when I did a 
lot of research on this. Um, there's never been any scientific evidence that more than three milligrams is good. And a lot of times when you buy these things in the store, it's like five to 20 milligrams, which is just not right. And, and that's going to make you feel groggy the next day. Um, you know, a lot of this is so individualistic and you're kind of hitting on this a little bit that it's hard to give generic feedback. Right. Um, so I think you're right for like jet lag. It can make sense in certain situations. Um, sometimes it's just kind of like since it's the neg the downsides of it are pretty small. Um, and I almost don't want to say this because um, it could hinder the effect, but I'm kind of a proponent in revving off of the placebo effect. Like sometimes I'll, I think that it's kind of like people think that it might be helpful and then it becomes helpful. And I think there is something to that. So sometimes I, in certain situations, um, I might think that it's okay for that, but I think you're right that generally a lot of times it's not getting at the root of the issue. It can get at the root of the issue if you, you know, are really anxious about it and you feel like you need some external thing to help you. And at least it's not causing that much negative side effects, if you kind of understand what I'm saying. And I think uh, kind of going to that aspect, almost all of the sleep medicine, like I'm an anti, even though I'm a physician, I'm kind of an, I don't like to put substances in my body um, unless they're kind of in that natural element. Uh, and so even melatonin, I don't like, like I'll use it rarely when I'm traveling in jet lag, but other than that, I don't want to be on it for more than like one or two doses. Um, yeah. a lot of the sleep medications that people thought were helping in the past, they find they're just disastrous for sleep. Yes, yes. Um, from seeing people on all sorts of sleep medications, like what, what kind of stuff does it do to their deep sleep, their REM sleep? They're kind of like, is it actually, I mean, is sleeping eight hours with a sleep aid worse, like a sleep aid being a medication than just getting four or five hours without one? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, un unequivocally it's worse, right? Um, and there's never been a study showing that sleep aids help in the long term. There's only been, um, they've gotten FDA approval because they're meant to be, to function in short term situations, i.e. jet lag. And if you're, you know, really stressed out and you know, you're going to have a bout of insomnia or something like this. Um, and so isn't it worse, isn't it better just to get your, let's say you're, you're stressed out to get the four or five hours than to take the sleep aid and probably not function the next day. Your thoughts on that too? Cause that kind of comes I mean, up too. I, mean, I think there could be instances where it's better to take the sleep aid, the sleep aid. Um, like at a certain, like there's a certain point where, you know, if it's, if you're sleeping so much less, your sleep quality is going to be worse with the sleep aid. Um, but if you're really sleeping so much less because of the insomnia, maybe in a very small window of scenarios, it could make sense to take the sleep aid periodically. And that's the only way it's ever been scientifically validated. But it's not meant to be taken more than like a couple times a week. And there's a really strong dose response to it and you get addicted to it. Um, and then also get all these doctors prescribe it off label for prolonged periods of time, which is not right. What does it do to the deep sleep and REM sleep on someone when you study them in a lab? 
it, it hurts your, it, I mean, it's just straight, it hurts your sleep quality. It hurts deep sleep in the realm. And uh, I, I can, sometimes we think of sleep as being this, like, it's, did I get seven hours, did I get eight hours? Um, but it's not just a quantity thing. Um, it's definitely like, it's a quality thing as well. And I imagine that you're not going to get the same sort of qualitative benefits from this, right? Yeah, yeah, you're 100% right. And also like alcohol falls into this category too. Part of what's happening is um, it's, kind of, it's basically just like knocking you out. Um, so you have the perception that you're unconscious, but your brain isn't like fully unconscious like it should be during sleep is a simple way that I think about it. So it's like sedation versus sleep. They're two different things. Exactly, exactly. If you're sedated, you're not really like refreshed afterwards, but if you have good sleep, it's a whole different story. You're... It's exactly. Um, so talking about um, that, so I think the only thing that's been proven to work is cognitive behavioral therapy is my understanding is that, uh, so if you don't have OSA, if you don't have obstructive sleep apnea um, and someone comes in and says, I can't sleep, this is where this becomes such a hard thing to, to treat because now someone comes in and says, well, how do I treat it? There's not a magic pill. We, we've established that. Um, there's not. Um, um, so then it kind of falls into your lap and says, hey, I can't sleep. What do I do? And that's Yeah. And it's a hard problem. And when I talk about this with my professor, he, and he knows way more about this than I do even. Um, and he likes to speak about different sleep phenotypes like there's probably and the reason why cognitive behavioral therapy works is it's designed to be a multimodal intervention that addresses the different phenotypes like if you have insomnia it's probably you know it could be like five causal different causal things that are making you have insomnia whether it's a circadian issue maybe because you're older and your rhythm becomes less entrenched um, and now I would have a different set of solutions for that, um, whether it's, um, you know, a stress thing and then, you know, you start having insomnia and then you start associating. And so then there's the stress causal factor. And then you, because you're awake in bed so much, you start associating the bed with um, being awake. And so that's why stimulus control works. Um, and the so basically, if we want to just talk broadly about what cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is there's stimulus control associating your bed with sleep relaxation um you know meditations we have like progressive muscle relaxation in our app where you tense different muscles in your body and that's been scientifically shown like learning how to not have an overactive fight or flight response um Sleep hygiene, which is kind of, you know, the things that everyone talks about, almost everyone knows, you know, don't drink coffee close to bed, don't eat too close to bed. Um, that's actually one of the, we usually use that in studies as a placebo because it's sort of the um, lesser of an uh, effect. Um, and actually the thing, and then cognitive training, sort of getting over those maladaptive thoughts that can be, that can form around sleep. Um, you know, like, for example, like, you know, people stress, like trying to address people's thought processes of like, if I don't get this much sleep, I'm going to, you know, totally not be able to function the next day, like trying to get them to back off of that way of thinking, like the difference between sleep and lots of other things in Americans lifestyle is that like the harder you try to fall asleep, 
the harder it is to fall asleep, which is the opposite of almost every other thing. You know, the more I try to exercise, the more effective it is. Um, so kind of shifting people into thinking about it like that. And sometimes I'll have clients who like will meditate, do like three or four meditations. And they're like, why can't I fall asleep? And I'm like, you're trying too hard. Um, you know, meditating is good and everything, but you know, it, sleeping is about letting go. And so that's kind of what the cognitive training is about. And the thing that actually has the biggest effect size in the scientific literature um, is something called sleep restriction. Um, and there's also now sleep compression, which is a less severe form of it, where say you have insomnia, you're sleeping, and you, if you do this, you should really do it with a trained uh, clinician. Um, you know, you're only in bed for, you're in bed for eight hours, but you're only sleeping five. Um, and by the way, what defines insomnia is spending less than 85% of the time in bed asleep is kind of the clinical definition. And if you're doing that uh, repeatedly throughout the week. And so what sleep restriction says is, okay, you're only sleeping five hours anyway. Let's either move your bedtime really late or move your wake time really early. You will be tired. Um, and but what will happen is we'll consolidate your sleep. And the other part of this is no naps. Um, whereas if you were like an optimizer, I might suggest naps. Um, whereas if you're an insomniac, um, or if you're, sorry, if you're someone with a sleep problems, falling asleep and staying asleep, you might suggest to them no naps. Um, and then once their sleep is consolidated, i.e., more than 90% of the time spent in bed asleep, you slowly move the bedtime back over like a two week period. And you do this with a, a trained uh, sleep clinician, basically. How many sessions does, so someone says, you know what, because um, it sounds like a lot of people are gonna fall into the second category of just, um, and having um, CBD, uh, CBT. Um, uh, how many sessions do you think uh, most people require coming, it's a generic, but it's hard to do with every person, but. Um, are most people going to be after three sessions, five sessions? And then when do they see improvement? You know, when they, when they become a, um, you know, kind of client, is it like after session two, session one, session five, or is this kind of one of those things that it's, they're going to probably need some follow-ups like a year or two years for you. I mean, it's probably just to kind of make sure everything's kind of doing what it's doing. So all the science, I mean, people ha will have different times where they respond, but all the science usually all the publications that show that this works, it's over like a five week period. Um, so they'll start out and, and each week, the doctor would do different aspects of the cognitive behavioral therapy. So you might start out with doing like relaxation um, and then you'll introduce like um, sleep restriction or sleep compression and you're rolling that out over like a five week period. What we're trying to do is basically um, you know, usually when you're doing this, it's only like hour sessions with a doctor. We're trying to collect all this data in a way that a doctor, you know, we're trying to build the software where someone uh, maybe like you um, or, you know, even someone that is in your office um, could administer cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia 
through getting the data from these devices and it could I should actually not do cognitive be... behavioral therapy so i'll raise my I, hand I, okay okay, okay. okay. So I, now, I would refer to you so i would say hey um okay. and then you could you can do that to any person kind of anywhere in the world correct yeah, so that's the idea, and there's another software called Sleepio that is doing a digital thing that's similar, um, but it's not available to the general population. We we don't have this yet, but we're going to try to make it um, available to everyone, basically. So, so for our patients that kind of fall into that category where we've ruled them out for you know, kind of in that apnea aspect of it, the next thing is they need to see someone who's an expert in sleep, um, and so and then the cool thing about this is if you're doing kind of like we're talking now, you can remotely look at someone's place and you can see probably instantly, okay, this is a disaster and no one can fall asleep in this and then kind of change that assessment. So cool. Um, so for some of our patients um, with sleep, um, do you think you can actually become uh, more youthful with sleep? aspect of it, like an anti-aging aspect with it? Because a lot of our patients are looking for, looking their best and they'll try all sorts of things and medications and all that aspect. If you said to them, hey, guess what? I want you to age less. Um, what impact do you think sleep would have on them? I mean, it's almost like common sense, right? Like, haven't you noticed when you're sleep deprived, you have bags under your eyes? And like, people are thinking about this. Like, I've talked to L'Oreal about this too, and, you know, other wings of venture companies and stuff. Like, sleep is a way to look better and feel younger. Um, it's responsible for cell recovery. Like, um, you're going to look better if you sleep better. It's, it's not like a controversial statement, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, they have that aspect of, you know, snoring itself. There was like an age differential at some places I've looked at that for like, um, life expectancy. And I think there's some correlation between sleep and, um, and age. And, uh, so it's interesting that, um, uh, you know, kind of the aspect of it is it's probably underappreciated if you're, I think, living longer with sleep uh, that um, I think, I don't know how many years they, at the real scale, like if you don't floss your teeth, you lose like six years of life. Mm -hmm. And I think if you snore, I think you lose, I think it's eight to 10 years, something of that nature. Well, I've seen studies where untreated sleep apnea will take off five years on your life on average. Um, but, and, and another aspect of this is as you get older, um, you get less deep sleep. They don't know exactly what's causing what, but so theoretically, and that's also associated with Alzheimer's disease, lots of other things. Um, so one thing that we're trying to do work towards in our next line of research is actually studying a 65 plus population, seeing if by making them sleep more regeneratively, we can reduce their conversion to cognitive decline basically. Um, I'm not going to take any chances, so I'm going to try to get as much deep sleep as I can, whether it's uh, uh, natural or more than likely it's going to be sonic sleep induced with deep uh, sleep and uh, having that integrated. I'm excited about that because uh, it seems that um, all these factors in regenerative and youth and having more deep sleep and keeping my, um, you know, my deep sleep at least at two hours, even though it may or may not be as accurate. Uh, so super, super um, helpful information for me and for all of our, our, our patients. And um, yeah, so uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I mean, amazing, amazing information. Thank you. My, my pleasure.